All right, thank you for coming tonight. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying the Word of God. We pray, Father, that you will enable us to uh, grasp what the Bible is teaching and that we might apply it in our lives in a way that will be pleasing to you, that will enable us to serve you more effectively, to love and worship you in a righter way, in a better way. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are looking at the uh, first missionary journey, and we start, it starts in Acts chapter 13, as we saw, with Barnabas and Saul, as he's called there, sent out from Antioch, sort of his home church. And uh, they leave from the port of Seleucia, about 10 miles from Antioch here. They go to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' home country, home province. And they go to Salamis, then Paphos. And we have the conversion of Sergius Paulus, that proconsul. They make their way up into Pamphylia, the Roman province of Pamphylia. And then on to Antioch in Pisidia, another place named Antioch. And I found a map here I should have shown you earlier, but this kind of shows you some of the ethnic names. These are ethnic geographical names because this area has been lived in for thousands of years. And so uh, so Lacanea, we saw that, Pisidia, Phrygia, Phrygia goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Galatia. Now, we'll talk about Galatia here a little more, but this is what we call ethnic Galatia. And I'll talk about ethnic Galatia here in a moment. So these are people who are ethnically Galatians, ethnically Phrygians. Now, over the years, other people have moved in. You know, and Romans have moved in and settled and established colonies and other things. But Paul... And Silas, Paul, and Barnabas, they leave Antioch and Pisidia, and they come to Iconium. And then uh, this is in the province of Galatia. There's the Roman province of Galatia. So the Romans divide up their conquered territory into provinces, and one of these is the province of Galatia. This area north here is where more of the people who were ethnically Galatians lived. But these people in Antioch, Iconium, Derby, Lystra, they're Galatians too in the provincial sense, in the sense that they are members of the province of, uh, they're, they're citizens of the province of Galatia, though they're not ethnically Galatians. But this is the province that we're dealing with here and where Paul is, is at. He goes from Iconium uh, over to Lystra from Iconium over to Lystra. And we were looking at that last time in page on page 8 of our notes, the ministry at Lystra. <clears throat> we notice it's about 18 miles from Iconium. We noticed last time uh, when Paul and Barnabas came that they were somehow mistaken for gods in human form. And that's because of apparently this healing that takes place. Um, 
this this healing, uh, the excitement surrounding this healing. Um, in Lystra, there was a man, verse eight, who had never, who had uh, been that way from birth. That is, he was lame. So here was somebody everybody knew. Can't fake this or something like this. This is a guy who's never walked his entire life. And all of a sudden, what would you think here? This man is healed miraculously, and they say the gods have come down to us in human form. Remember the mythology, uh, Greek and Roman mythology is filled with stories. If you ever had a chance to study it, it's filled with stories about the gods coming down in human form, taking on human form, and so forth. So we suggested that uh, in our notes there on page 8, there was a legend about this that Ovid mentions. He mentions a myth about Hermes and Zeus coming down in a previous time. So maybe they associated, maybe they were aware of that myth. We don't know. At least they uh, were affected by that. And so they assumed that Paul, uh, saw Paul and Barnabas were gods come in human form. And so they are going to worship them. Uh, remember, the, they speak in their own language, so Paul and Barnabas don't know in verse 11, at first, what's happened? What's going on? What's what, what's the excitement about? Verse 14, they hear about this, and they say, we read last time, Paul says, no, we're just humans. And Paul uh, speaks to them biblical truth here about God, the creator who made the heavens and the earth. He let nations go their own way, but now he has shown kindness. He's, he, he, let, he showed kindness to them, common grace. He gave them rain and crops and so forth. But uh, now he wants you to repent. He's called all nations to repent and turn away from these pagan ways. So they had difficulty, verse 18, it says, keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. But then we noticed uh, something very strange. Then some Jews, verse 19, came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. I mean, it seems amazing that these people could be that fickle that on the one hand, Mary said, they're gods, and then all of a sudden, no, they're not gods, and they actually end up stoning Paul and dragged him outside of the city. As I say here, maybe some time had passed, uh, and maybe uh, Paul uh, had made it clear, Barnabas made it clear, we're not gods, we're simply men, and maybe this was understood. Um, but as I say here on page 9 the top of page 9 maybe they felt they were imposters maybe they came to the conclusion I'm trying to explain this change of attitude maybe they thought well these people are not gods maybe they're imposters uh, maybe they felt like they had been made to look foolish maybe they're resentful but whatever happened these Jews who came from uh, Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over they're able to poison the minds of these Jews there and others that these are false teachers and so forth. Remember, Paul is in Galatia, and Paul is hounded by people who are following him and hounding him, arguing that he's wrong, that Gentiles must keep the law and be circumcised, and so Paul's facing continual opposition about that. And so Paul is actually dragged outside of the city and stoned. It's a little difficult to know what's happened here, whether we should, what kind of miracle we should 
think here, you know, how, how big of a miracle or much of a miracle is going on here. Because it says, you stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Um, it doesn't say he died. Um, as I said, uh, I mentioned last week, uh, some people think that, I remember I heard this when I was growing up preached, that uh, I heard it taught, that uh, that Paul, in fact, this was the time that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 when he was caught up into the third heaven. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uh, in that epistle says this. He says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. Now what Paul is doing here, he's defending his apostleship in chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians against some false teachers who have come into the church in Corinth. And so he's sort of laying out his credentials. Now, he says, I don't like this. He calls it boasting as a fool. He says, I don't like to lay out my credentials here, but I'm forced to because these false teachers are claiming that they are from God and so forth. And so one of the things he mentions here is that uh, I must go on boasting. There's nothing to be gained. I will go on divisions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ. So he doesn't want to boast, so he doesn't even say, I, Paul. He just says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. See, he's talking about Paul. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So Paul says, I was caught up to heaven. At least it seemed I was. I'm not sure. I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. I'm not sure what was going on. But I saw things there that I can't even tell you about. I'm not allowed to even speak about. So uh, this is sometimes uh, said thought that maybe this corresponds with what's happened here. Maybe Paul did sort of die here and he was caught up into heaven and then he comes back to life because it says in verse 20, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Uh, this is not uh, that particular occasion. We can be fairly sure about that because we know the, the dates here pretty clearly. So the first missionary journey is around 46 to 48. That's pretty clear. Um, so we know these dates. So, so this, so this, this, this particular occasion we're talking about here is around, say, AD 47. So plus or minus a year. So this is Paul, this incident we're, we're seeing where he is stoned outside the city is 47. Now when he's writing Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that's about AD 56 at the earliest. It might be 57 and so forth, but it's about 56. 14 years before that, Paul says 14 years ago, that's 42. Where was Paul in A.D. 42? Remember, Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. He goes into Damascus. He says, three years later, I went down to Jerusalem, and then I went to the area of Syria and Cilicia. I went back to Tarsus. And he was there for eight, nine, ten years. That's this AD 42. So 
whenever this happened, that was back when he was in Cilicia, Tarsus, that area there, whenever whatever this episode was. It wasn't this particular episode chronologically. It just can't fit the chronology. Now, whether Paul was actually killed here, and the text says they were thinking he was dead. So some would say, well, he did die, but he was raised up. And that's where that, and he said he was thinking he was dead. But, you know, I kind of assume, if I take the text as it is, they stoned him, but they didn't quite kill him. Now, anyway, you look at, this is fairly miraculous. I'm not trying to take the miraculous out of this, because if you get stoned, <laughs> I think they know how, I think they knew how to stone somebody, you know. It's not that they just threw a few pieces of gravel at you, you know. So the fact that they stoned him and dragged him outside the city, and then he got up and went into the city, and the next day he went to Derby, he must have had some miraculous healing, you know, at least. So, you know, it's, it's fairly miraculous what happened to him here. Whether he died and was raised, I don't know. But certainly there was something very miraculous about being able to be stoned and then recovering that quickly and going back into the city. So it says the next day they go on to Derby. Now they're right here on the outskirts of Galatia here. Here they're they're right they've they kind of come to the to the end of of southern Galatia, the southern part of Galatia. But this area is not easily annexed here or accessed here. This is a little different area. Uh, it's not on the natural road. Remember, they're on the um, they're on the uh, Via Sebasti here. They're they're on a kind of a Roman road, and so that's that's the way they're traveling. They're following the, the standard roads there. But we see then in fourteen twenty one through twenty eight the ministry at Derby and the return to Antioch. So they went to Derby. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Here's Derby. What did we call that? What was that technical name for that? A tell. The technical name the archaeologists use is a tell. Remember, it's my word. It means tall. It just means a hill. So it's an unexcavated site. So they've identified the site. They're pretty sure. That is, they've done a little excavation they found some remains and so forth, and they're pretty sure that's the site, but no one has actually dug down. And that's what archaeologists do. Remember, they dig down in layers. They dig holes and dig layers and dig layers and dig deeper, and then they try to date. Why is it raised? It's interesting. There's just tales like that everywhere. So they tended to just build right on top, right on top, and they liked the height. It was more defensible. See, now most of the time, these cities would have had walls around them. Those walls are gone. So they would have had walls around, maybe two walls, like Jericho. We know Jericho had a, an outer... A, there, so you've got walls here, and so, so they like that kind of height. But over time, it just builds up into that kind of mountain kind of tail. Trash is just, it's just dumped there. So... Um, they come to Derby. It says a large number of disciples were converted there. I say it's about 35 miles southeast of Lystra on the eastern border of Galatia. It was the home of Gaius, or Gaius, 
a later companion of Paul. After a peaceful ministry there, Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps back through the other Galatian cities. So they come back now and sort of retrace their steps. It says uh, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They were apparently to return here without too much opposition because apparently they confided their ministry when they came back just to working with the people who had been converted. Apparently they were just trying to confirm these people in the faith. They weren't going to the synagogue. They weren't stirring up you know, the Jews or something like that. So apparently they were just returning, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them, and so forth, the churches that had been established there. They, uh, Paul says, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to go th- remain true to the faith, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the word in whom they had put their trust. So, um, I guess I got ahead of myself here. Um, I had a note here about appointed elders because it says Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in every church. Uh, This is the Greek word uh, presbyteroi. So, the singular is presbyteros. So we get our word Presbyterian from this. Presbyterian. Because in the Presbyterian form of church government, uh, you have an elder rule, uh, an elder ruled congregation. Not congregational government, but an elder rule. Um, As I say here, these elders are the same as the bishops and pastors. So, there are three terms, you remember, in the New Testament for what we call in our circles, in Baptist circles, mostly, and in some Bible circles, some Bible churches use the term elder quite a bit, for the same person. Um, They're interchangeable, they're not exactly synonymous. So there's presbyteros. There's episkopos. This is the word that's translated uh, bishop or overseer. And there is um, the word poimain, which translate pastor. Literally, literally means shepherd. So, there are three terms that are used in the New Testament to designate the person that we call pastor generally in our circles. And these terms are used interchangeable. Here they're called elders, but in other places they may be called bishops, or they may be called pastor. 
And we can see that right here in the book of Acts. Later on in Acts chapter 20, I'll just turn over there. This is uh, Acts chapter 20 is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. We're on the first missionary journey. But at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he comes to the church at Ephesus, a church he had established on his second missionary journey. And he calls, it says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So Paul calls the elders of the church here, and he begins to talk to them. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, and I served the Lord. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything. I have declared to you both declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance. Now I'm going to Jerusalem. I consider my life not worth nothing, verse 24. Verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Verse 28, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See it is. So those elders that we're talking about here, these elders are also called overseers, episcopos. They're called overseers. And then notice what else he says. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of God. Now there's the verb form. Shepherd or pastor the church of God. So it's clear from this passage and other passages too that um, these are really terms that are interchangeable. They're not synonymous. Uh, Elder refers to a person's probably status as a mature Christian. This refers to someone who has superintending. Superintendent might be a good word. This refers more to the work of pastoring or shepherd. So they have different ideas, but they're used interchangeably to refer to the same person or persons in this particular case. So in our church government, congregational church government that we have here, and other churches have, like Baptist churches, Bible, other Bible churches, and so forth, um, they have what we call congregational church government. And we say, what I just told you, that these terms are interchangeable. <clears throat> But there are other forms of church government that don't agree with that. There's two other forms. One form is called the Episcopal form of church government. In the Episcopal form of church government, they make a distinction between the presbyteros and the episcopos. The episcopos, the bishop, the overseer, is higher up. And he's over the elders or the pastors. So they make a distinction. Now, This distinction cannot be substantiated in the second century, in the first century. It happened in the second century. It's generally agreed. Even people who argue for this form of church government say that's true. It didn't develop sort of until the second century. So this form of church government is found in many churches, like the Episcopal Church. (laughs) In the Episcopal Church, there are bishops... And they're over certain areas. You might have a, I don't know what the Episcopal Church has here, maybe the, a bishop over Detroit, I don't know. There's a bishop, 
and then there are elders or pastors. And if you're a member of an Episcopal church, you don't vote on who your next pastor is going to be. You don't have any say-so over who your pastor is going to be. The bishop appoints who the pastor is going to be. Now, uh, another form of this is the Roman Catholic Church. That's a monarchical form, but it's an Episcopal form. The bishops control the church. And there's one bishop who is supreme, the bishop of Rome, but it's still that same form. The Methodist Church has this form. So when I was growing up, I remember hearing people when I was going to school complaining about the fact that they went to this church, they liked this pastor, but they, they would move around every three or four years. They would move them. I don't know if they still do that. They'd move you to a new location, and you didn't really have any say-so. Maybe they have more today, I don't know, but the bishop decided who was going to move to this new location and so forth like that. So that's the Episcopal form. Then there's the Presbyterian form, and that's practiced by Presbyterian churches. In the Presbyterian churches, there are the elders. They also have synods. They have, they have other groups of organizations. But in the Presbyterian church, generally, this can vary a lot because there's a lot of change, but the elders of the church basically control the church. And the elders determine who the pastor will be. They don't have a vote of the congregation. If they if the pastor dies, the elders choose another pastor, someone else to be the pastor. So it's not congregational in that particular sense. So uh, we have a question here that comes up then in connection with this because it says here um, in our text, verse seventeen. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse um, 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. As I say here uh, in the notes, normally the word select, the church selected its own officers. Normally the church selected its own officers. We've seen that already because in Acts chapter 6, when the church... When the, when the apostles needed help, they said, the apostles said, you, you select some men, deacons. Pick out some men, you know, and choose these men to help us. And the church did. So normally, the church would choose who these people would be. Um, we see that in, in, in num- numerous places. Um, Acts 15, 2, later, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles. So at Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers by the church at Antioch. So the church appointed its own officials and so forth. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8.19 is another text which talks about the fact that Paul is collecting an offering that he's taking back to the church at Antioch. He's collecting it from the Gentile churches that he has established. And he mentions that in Acts chapter 8, verse 19. What is more, he was chosen by the churches. So it says here, we are sending along with him, that is with Titus, the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen, not by the Apostle Paul, 
not by Titus, but by the churches to accompany us as we carry this offering, which we administer, and so forth. As I say, the word appointed originally meant to elect by raising hands, and the same word is used in 2 Corinthians 8.19 with this meaning. Therefore, some have suggested that here the churches chose their own elders. So one way to look at this, some people have said, okay, this word, the Greek word that's used here, sometimes can mean to elect by raising hands. That's sort of the root idea of the word, elect by raising hands. And so even though it says in our translation, Paul Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, it really doesn't mean that. It really means that the church selected them by raising their hands. I don't think that's the case in this particular case. Um, As I say, however, the text specifically says the choice was made for them, not by them. So in 2 Corinthians 18, the choice of that brother was made by the churches. But here it says Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. I say here is an instance in the early church, early period of the church, that the apostles apparently exercised special authority that would not be normative today. However, it seems quite certain that men who were appointed elders also had the approval of the churches. So we have kind of a special situation. We don't have any apostles around today to appoint you know, any elders in our churches and so forth. But there you have Barnabas and, and, and Paul, certainly Paul, who could do this. These are fledgling churches. And I, I'm sure that when Paul appointed these people, these people would be people, men that the church would agree with, that these are good men and so forth. I'm sure Paul didn't put people in there who would be opposed by the church. You know, a similar situation occurs in the mission field. If you go to uh, a country that's not evangelized and you establish, start a church there and so forth as a missionary, this happens many times. I know many men who have done this. Well, the first thing they want to do is try to develop leadership. They start training men. They get men. They teach them the Bible. Sometimes they find people who have some knowledge, biblical knowledge, and they train them. And then they get this person to take over the church. It's sort of like the missionary is kind of appointing this guy, but he just doesn't appoint it on himself. He gets the church to approve this, but he's sort of guiding the church along. This is a special situation because you've got a young church uh, without much leadership, and so here you have a missionary helping them find their first pastor and so forth. And that's sort of what we have here in this particular situation. But normally, you know, the congregation will choose their own pastor. Now, congregations get help. They get advice. They ask people. They get recommendations and so forth like that. And uh, as they go along, but ultimately it has to be a, vo- a vote of the people in the church. So they appoint these elders, and then it says after going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. So they come down, back, retrace their steps to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, so they did do some evangelization here, uh, then they come back to Antioch. From Atalaya, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Um, 
Verse 27, on arriving, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I quote that there at the bottom of page 9. It's clear that Luke sees this as a great accomplishment of the first missionary journey. Luke describes it as, the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. That is, that this that for the first time the gospel had been preached to pagan Gentiles who had no necessary connection to Judaism and its institutions. We had Cornelius before, remember, but he was a Gentile, but he was a God-fearer. He had gone to the synagogue. He had connection with Judaism. He had, you know, but these are just pagans who have never heard the Bible, don't know anything. And so they had accepted God. This is a new thing. Which, you know, if you think about this for a while, where does this leave Judaism? If these pagan Gentiles can be saved and right with God, what in the world are they doing down the temple down there? Aren't they just kind of wasting their time? Yes, they are. But it's not, it's not obvious to everybody that they're wasting their time. Nobody's written the book of Hebrews yet, right? To say the blood of bulls and goats, you know, it's just that's no good. It doesn't do anything. So it's going to take time. We're in a transition period here where we can see that Israel is no more and God has turned to the church. So it's a transition we'll have to follow here. Well, they stayed there for a long time with the disciples. And so I say at this time, under verse 28, about AD 49, Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians. So he's writing back to these particular churches. Now, these Galatians, they get their name because that word Galatai is the same word for Gauls. These people, uh, around 250 B.C., you know, 250 years before Paul, 300 years before Paul comes on the scene, people from what we think as France or Gaul, uh, remember Caesar defeated the Gauls, uh, these people migrated, and they came down to this area, and they settled in this northern area here in Galatia. And that's what we call ethnic Galatia. So from about 278 to 225 B.C., that is Galatia. But then the Romans came in in 25 B.C., and they created a province, and they called it Galatia. Even those of those people in the south weren't ethnic Galatians. They weren't Gauls. Nevertheless, they're in the province of Galatia, you know, and now they're, they're Galatians in that sense. So when Paul is writing his epistle to the Galatians, he's writing to those people in the province. He's writing to the people of Iconium, Derby, Lystra, uh, Antioch, and Pisidia, that he established those churches on his first missionary journey. <coughs> now, I brought this today because I was thinking maybe a fellow might be here who kind of called me on this the first week because I was just going to let this slip by but I wasn't going to tell you everything but there, remember Adam here and his wife Renee they came Wednesday night so I was saying that first night I said you know Galatians was uh, Galatians was written eighty forty nine. remember I said that and Adam says well wait a minute I thought it was like 51 <laughs> Well, he's right. There's a debate about that. Exactly when Galatians was written. See, I'm saying it's written right now, at the end of the first missionary journey, before the Jerusalem Council. So I'm saying 
after the first missionary journey, Galatians is written. And then we'll see 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Is it getting hot in here? Let me just cut this off. You want some water? No, I'm good. I was just sitting down showing you how I could teach you a minute. You've got to be careful because the nurses will start <laughs> Well, I might need it, so I'm glad she's here. It is getting a little hot in here, isn't it? So this could be the case here. Notice it's 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then Galatians. Galatians could have been written later, after the second missionary journey, or maybe on the second missionary journey. Some people think that. But I don't think that's true. I think this is true. And there's a lot of reasons, but here's the main reason why. When Paul is writing that letter to the Galatians, he's writing to refute the Judaizers those Jews, those false teachers we call the Judaizers, and he's writing because they are going at, throughout Galatia, through Antioch of Iconium, Derby, Lystra, and, and, he is, and they are teaching, you Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. You've got to do that. And so Paul is writing back here and saying, you don't have to do that. And he writes a whole book about it. <clears throat> Now, the point is, if this were true, Galatians could have been about three par- one paragraph in the sense of, you could have said, listen, we settled this in Acts 15. You see, what's coming up next is Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, they will settle the fact that Gentiles don't have to keep the law and be circumcised. So if Paul is writing the book of Galatians here in 53, the Jerusalem Council is in 49... If Paul is writing the book of Galatians, why doesn't he mention the Jerusalem Council? He's got an absolute winning argument here. He can say, listen, because these people in Galatians are Judaizers who have come from Jerusalem and are infiltrating, and they they claim to be from Jerusalem. And they're saying, you've got to keep the law and be circumcised. Well, if that's true, if Paul writes this letter after the Jerusalem Council, why doesn't he mention the Jerusalem Council, which sort of settled the issue. He doesn't mention the Jerusalem Council. And the most likely reason he doesn't mention it is because he wrote it before the Jerusalem Council. He wrote it in AD 49, right before, right here, after Acts 14, and before the Council in Acts 15. So we don't know for sure, but that's this is where, where most people think it's written. But not everybody. Some people think... Well, they said, what would they say? Well, Paul just wanted to make the argument without using the council. Maybe so. But I don't think so. Let's come then to the Jerusalem Council, chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. I say here, this chapter addresses a question that had been brewing for a number of years. What exactly is the role of Gentiles in this new community, the church? How do they relate to Christians? to Jewish Christians and the law. Though this chapter is commonly described as the Jerusalem Council, some say it might be more accurately said to be a consultation rather than a council, since it's not a council in the later technical sense of later church history. That is, later we talk about the Council of Nicaea in church history, the Council of Chalcedon, Council of Ephesus, 
So it is a council. It's a consultation. It's just a, some people object to that. <clears throat> but it's commonly called a council, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, the bringing together of all the, of the apostles and church leaders at, uh, excuse me, at, I got to add in, uh, in Jerusalem in AD 49 was an event of the greatest importance for the early church. By this time, it was clear the Gentiles were to be a part of the church. But the question remained, on what basis should they enter the community? It is clear from the Old Testament that Gentiles were always meant to share in the promises to Israel. This is a recurring theme of the Old Testament. So I just put some of those verses up, like Genesis 28. Remember, God is, makes all those promises to, to Abraham. You know, you, you, Abraham will result in blessings to all the families of the earth, even. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the east, west and the east to the north, and that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. God repeats that a number of times, remember. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is too, is it, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So it was always God's plan for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Zechariah 8.22 And many peoples and powerful nations will continue to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. So in the future, you know, powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord. So it's clear from many verses in the Old Testament that Gentiles are ultimately going to be part of God's salvation. But exactly how is that going to happen? I say this truth was the basis for Jewish proselytizing. That's why Jews went out and tried to convert Gentiles. As we had previously saw, it was the central in Peter's sermon at Pentecost and his words at the house of Cornelius. But Jews believe that for Gentiles to be right with God, they must come through the portal of Judaism, which included its institutions. Early Christians at Jerusalem seem to have adopted the same idea. Until Paul's evangelization of pagan Gentiles, all the Gentiles had accepted Jesus, all the Gentiles probably should have said who had accepted Jesus as Israel's Messiah, and those saved were primarily, if not exclusively, either full proselytes or near proselytes, that is, God-fearers, people like Cornelius. Many Jewish Christians believe that Gentiles would need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. But of course, this was rejected by Paul, who argued in his letter to the Galatian Christians, quote, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may, all, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So let's look at this. <clears throat> we see, first of all, the delegation from Syrian Antioch. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So people came down. It seems funny to say come down if you're going north, doesn't it? But remember, this is higher up here. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll notice how when you get to the airport, you're driving straight up. You're driving up all the way from the airport on the coast up to Jerusalem, up in the mountains. 
So they're going down geographically in that sense. So they're saying certain people come to Antioch from Jerusalem and they're saying you've got to be circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses. And if you're not, you cannot be saved. As I say here, some have identified them with certain men from James um, of Galatians 2.12 or the false teachers of Galatians 2.4. Uh, it's a little difficult to tell here, but when Paul is talking in Galatians 2, this is about an earlier period, um, he says, um, <clears throat> then after 14 years, this is Galatians 2.1, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along. This Galatians 2 we've already covered because that was the famine relief visit of Acts chapter 11 when Paul and Barnabas went down in Acts chapter 11. <clears throat> Paul says, I went in response by, to revelation to a revelation meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the, the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles and I wanted to be sure I was not running and had been not been running my race in vain. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Then he says, verse 4, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give it give in to them for a moment. So Paul was facing these kinds of false teachers. This is a kind of a continual problem, apparently. Coming to Antioch. And, 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 you know, the church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas up there originally to find out what's going on in Antioch. You know, and he, he put his approval on it, Barnabas did and so forth, and he went and got Paul and brought him back. He taught there for a whole year, you remember. But apparently some people in Jerusalem are not happy about what's going on up there and what Paul's mission has basically taken on here of going out from Antioch and just preaching the gospel to pagan Gentiles and claiming that they're right with God. So they are saying, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And that would mean, of course, that all of Paul's converts are unsaved. Because Paul has been going out through Galatia and he hasn't circumcised any of those male converts. He's preached against it. So that would be saying, these people aren't saved at all. Verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles about this question. And I say, you know, it's necessary to get a consensus on this, I think. You want to settle this matter. This is going to affect evangelization, what's going forward. So they say, let's go down to Jerusalem and talk to the people there. We've got these people coming up claiming to be representing Jerusalem. Are they really representing the leadership of Jerusalem or what the church is saying, what's going on here. So they travel down. The church sent them on their way. They travel down to Jerusalem. Along the way, it says, uh, they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, through Phoenicia here and then down through Samaria. These are Gentile areas. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad, at least those believers, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. 
Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? So the fact that some of these Christians, believers, apparently genuine believers, were members of the party of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are a sect of Judaism. So if you're a Jew, you could, if you wanted to, uh, adopt the beliefs of the Pharisees. They had a particular way of interpreting scripture, a particular way of living, and so forth. There were other sects, like Essenes, you know, and the Sadducees, and so forth. So some of these Pharisees got saved. Remember Nicodemus got saved? He was a Pharisee, right? So some of these Pharisees got saved, and so it doesn't, it's not surprising that they might say, hey, wait a minute. You've got to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. These Gentiles must be. I mean, I can see where they get that, you know. What has changed here? They didn't have dispensationalism 101 class yet, you know. So there, that was a joke, but you, you just didn't get that, did you? Anyway, they didn't. They they weren't aware of you know what we think of as there's been a change, a, a different dispensation. We're now in the age of the church, and that's a transition. So it's it's hard to. We I can sort of understand their predicament here a little bit. So. Um, we see then uh, number two here on page 11, the nature and course of the debate, verses 6 through 12. Uh, as I say here, Peter is no longer the leader of the church. He's, he gets up and, well, first of all, it says, the apostles and elders met together. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And so he's not the leader of the church. It's James, the half-brother of Christ, who is the leader um, of the church. Um, we noted that back before. He's more of an apostle and a missionary. Remember, he's been out preaching. We saw him preaching, you know, in Joppa, and he went to Caesarea and so forth. He's not particularly a leader in the church there. His comments here that he gives us in verses 6 through 12 build on the Cornelius incident. He's sort of rehearsing that, showing that uh, God told him and God taught him how Gentiles can be saved apart from circumcision. He says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. Remember what happened in Acts 10 with the house of Cornelius. Peter is preaching, and as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit came on them. And, you know, Peter didn't do anything. He didn't lay hands on them. He just came on them, just like he did on Pentecost. And Peter had to say, hey, this is the work of God. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And again, I think this helps explain what's going on in Galatians a little better. Peter seems to, he seems to know the truth here pretty well. But you remember in, in, in Galatians chapter 2, if you remember that chapter, Peter has to, Paul has to rebuke Peter about this issue. He has to be kind of rebuked. But here he seems to be right in line with the truth and so forth at this particular time after the incidents that Paul is talking about there in Galatia. 
Well, um, Paul, uh, Peter says here in verse 10, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? As I say, this is, a, this is similar to Galatians 5.1 where Paul talks about the law as a yoke, as a burden. So it's similar language to Galatians here. Well, then the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So they give their ministry and talking about how God has saved these people, the miraculous events that have taken place, the healing of these people and so forth. They give their testimony. Then we see the summing up by James. When they finished, James spoke up. James is the last one. As I say, he's the half-brother of Jesus, author of the book of James. He had become the leader of the Jerusalem church. He argues that Peter's ministry that led to the gospel going to the Gentiles was in complete agreement with the Old Testament scriptures. He cites Amos 9, Isaiah 45, and the end times. He, he says, the, Amos talks about in the end times, Israel will be restored in the millennium. The Gentiles will share in those messianic blessings, but persisting as Gentiles, not necessarily becoming proselytes. Thus, this present conversion should be looked upon as sort of an eschatological event, not requiring the Gentiles to become proselytes. He says, Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The Cornelius incident. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. Amos, after this, I will rebuild, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. In ruins, I will rebuild it and I will restore it. For the rest of the mankind may, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So he says, I agree with what Peter says here. We shouldn't put this yoke of bondage of the law upon them. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law. But in my judgment, we should write, we should tell them this, that they should abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. As I say here, verse 11, the decision of the council vindicated Paul's ministry by agreeing that Gentiles did not have to keep the law and be circumcised. However, James argues that Gentiles must refrain from some food and conduct. The four items listed by James, food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals, and blood, have usually been interpreted in light of the first food polluted by idols. That is, they're related. The sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and the blood are related to the first one, food polluted by idols. 
usually interpreted in light of the food as dealing with marketplace food that had first been dedicated to an idol. So now, if you lived in a place like Corinth, and you wanted to go down and get some hamburger meat, <clears throat> if you went down there, you would go to the meat market, and every piece of meat there had first been dedicated in an idol temple. Every piece of meat there, the animal had been killed in an idol temple, some of it eaten in the temple, and some of it brought and sold in the meat market. That was the only meat you could get. As I say here, the Mishnah prohibited Jews from eating such meat. Now, the Mishnah is part of that Talmud. It's Jewish law. It's not written down yet, but the Mishnah says Jews can't eat that. So Jews were not allowed to eat that kind of meat. Jews had to kill their own animals. They had to slaughter their own food. They just couldn't go down to the meat market and buy meat. They were gluten, had to be gluten free. <laughs> so they couldn't they couldn't eat that meat. They had to they had to take care of their own meat and so forth, prepare kosher. They had to be kosher meat properly. Uh, uh, handled according to Old Testament regulations. So, this interpretation says, thus James is seen as suggesting some general guidelines for Gentiles to follow so that they will not unnecessarily offend Jews, whom, according to verse 21, they will naturally come in contact with since Jews and their synagogues are to be found all over the empire. That is, Gentiles are urged to observe Jewish food laws. Gentiles are urged to observe Jewish food laws in order to keep from offending Jews. Of course, this would be in conflict with Paul's teaching to his Gentile converts in Corinth. Chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians deal with this problem of eating meat in idol temples. Paul says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. 1 Corinthians 10.25. So we seem to have a conflict here, I think, between this interpretation and what Paul teaches in chapters 8 through 10. But there is a way to solve that, and we'll talk about that next time, all right? All right, thank you very much.